Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. My name is Thomas. Um, it's really great to be with you here this evening. It's been an amazing day. I hope you've had a beautiful day in the sunshine. It's just so cool to, to get together and worship, isn't it? And um, we're hoping that God's going to speak tonight even more than he already has been doing. So we're going to be in Galatians 5 um, in a moment, but just want to give you a little three-part introduction. We'll get straight into it. We're going to rewind a few thousand years. We're, we're with Abraham. He's 99 years old. He's in the middle of some desert somewhere. Imagine it's the Grand Canyon. That'll do. He's had just this incredible encounter with the living speaking God. They spoke with one another and a relationship was formed where it hadn't existed before. Genesis 17 goes into a bit more detail about what they were talking about. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you as well. The covenant you are to keep, that every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. And that might seem really random, but this was big. The living God, the one true God, was changing the course of history forever. Because he was going to come alongside humanity. It was a physical sign of the unique relationship that they had with God. You will be my people and I will be your God. So from now on, Abraham, you and your mates, I've got your back. You're with me now. They were set apart to receive the inheritance that God had prepared for them. And they suddenly had hope where they had no hope before, where they were just wandering God had given them a purpose because of the promise that he'd spoken into the life of this family that would become this great nation. It also meant that a lot of eight-day-year-old boys would do a lot of crying. And true to form, the girls got away completely scot-free. Some things never change. Just a little joke to start us off. So this covenant established with Abraham's family, it was good. It was a good thing. It was amazing. They had to still uphold their half of the deal to be blessed. But what an opportunity now to be on God's side, to go with God, to be free to roam in the land that God had prepared for them. This story was about freedom. So part two. Fast forward to the first century AD, we're in Jerusalem, we're in the surrounding areas, it's busy, it's bustling, we're in the marketplaces and there is this amazing food being cooked, it smells incredible and Jesus of Nazareth, he's stuffing his face full of it at dinner time, he's eating food that we can't even imagine, it's so tasty and you know this would all be good except silly Jesus is eating all this food with all the wrong people. This will not do. No, no, no. Eating food with tax collectors, bang out of order. Roman centurions, it is not okay. The girls, even from the red light districts. Jesus, right from the start of his ministry, you read about it in the Gospels, he embraced the outsiders. 
He presented to us a grand vision of a kingdom that is bigger than just pernickety rules about who's in or who's out, but is a vision of loving family, of radical inclusion, of proper community, of the extension of an invitation to the embrace of Father God for anyone who will receive it, anyone who will receive it. And you, and you know, and most of you do, that Jesus was so sold out on this idea of inviting these guys around for dinner, which seems such a silly thing, but actually it cost him his life. It cost him everything. His radical behavior cost Jesus his life. It wasn't on a rabbi that befriended the down and outers. It wouldn't do a blasphemer that even offered forgiveness of sins to the same people. No, it wouldn't do. He ended up on the outside of the city, on the edge of the Roman Empire, abandoned by those he thought loved him, dying so that those who previously had been on the outside, the ones the world had forgotten about, so that they could get on the inside, they could know family, they could belong, and to have him as their God, and to be his people. Last part, fast forward to Galatia, a district of Turkey, we're talking maybe 50 or, year, or so years later. Actually, this time we're leaning over the shoulder of somebody penning an open letter to the local people. So this is Paul writing to the people of Galatia in an open letter. I personally have never liked open letters, so much so that um, I recently went public about it and I posted something online, you can find it if you look hard enough. Um, But nonetheless, we have a strongly worded, impassioned case by Paul to the people of Galatia. And I want to talk about passion for a second. Do you ever find yourself so passionate about something that you just can't stay silent about it? I bet we've all got different things in the room, whether it's the state of education in Scotland, whether it's what's going on in the NHS at the moment, whether it's the persecuted church in our world, or whatever it is. We're all passionate about something. Paul finds himself unable to not speak up about something that he is fiercely passionate about. It's the grace of God. The grace of God. Something that he owed everything to. He was chief persecutor, remember, turned most persecuted. He was the chief of all sinners, transformed by grace. And Paul actually was obsessed with this notion of grace. We're about to read the passage and go through it properly, but just to give you a little sneak preview, in verse 2, Paul gets pretty angry. That's how passionate he is about this, this subject. He says that if you ever lose sight of the grace of God, if you ever try to earn his love instead of just receiving it, then actually Christ will become of no value to you at all. What he's done for you on the cross will be meaningless for you if you don't get the grace of God. So I hope as we read together and I take a few minutes to unpack a little bit more about this, the the amazing truth of what Jesus has done for us, is doing for us, will take us by surprise again, will become even more, wow, I want to be a person obsessed with the grace of God. So we read together, Galatians chapter 1. So if you find the New Testament, you go through the Gospels and keep flicking for a little bit, you'll find it. 
should be on the screen behind me. Galatians chapter, chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law, you've been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Because you, my brothers and my sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. Amazing stuff in there. Just going to recap quickly what we've been doing for the past five, six weeks in Galatians. Carl introed it saying that the way in was grace and that has to be the way on. We can't get sucked in into living around bringing ourselves back into the law. Faith continued it for us. She said that Jesus tore down the scaffolding. So why do we build it back up again? Andy shared the week after saying that actually our primary identity is as heirs. We have an inheritance that is abundant, that is full, and we need to take hold of it. And Carl last week reminded us not to, not to sell ourselves short of anything less than the promise of God. Not to try and shortcut the grace of God, but to wait for it to take root in our lives. So we've covered loads of ground so far in this letter, and, and he's actually building to a climax there is one last major theme left in here, and it is freedom. Freedom. God's grand vision for humanity. God's desire for his children to be free. This isn't an American dream idea. This isn't a French revolution idea. This isn't Gandhi's idea. This was the plan the whole time. For Paul and Peter, they were in the midst of a pretty brutal public conflict. They needed to get it all out in the table. And when you're in the middle of a conflict, you don't run away from it. You have to get real with one another. And so it was time for some real talk with these guys. Peter had effectively failed again in his leadership. Poor, 
bloke, isn't he? Poor bloke. Peter seems so lovable, but he just always gets it wrong. His, his leadership had been transformed since Pentecost and he'd received the Spirit, but he still wasn't perfect. He still made mistakes. And in verse 1, Paul encourages the church in Galatia to do exactly what Peter had not done. And this must have been a painful experience for him being outed in front of the whole wider church. Paul says, stand firm in the good news of Jesus. Stand firm, stick to your convictions, stick to the way that you've been saved. Where is God asking us as a church and you as a disciple to stand firm in your faith? Where is he provoking you? Where is he prompting you to stand firm in the midst of opposition when temptation to give in or give up looms large? Stand. Peter had been running a good race. He was doing great work. The church was growing. People were flourishing. But some of the guys he'd been getting to know, these agitators, a couple of guys who were up to no good, as Paul calls them, had been leading him down the wrong track and he hadn't had the courage to stand. So haters are going to hate. Agitators are going to agitate But it had been pulling Peter and Paul apart. It had a direct impact on the relationship of these guys that were leading out the church in the world. And something had to be said. And it took Paul to have the courage as a leader to speak up for what he was passionate about. The grace of God is what really mattered. Take a second right now. Examine your life. Is there a situation where you need to resolve to do the same? For the sake of the gospel or just for the sake of having integrity as a follower of Jesus? Resolve to do it with Paul's example in mind. Stand firm in the grace of God. We started off today talking about circumcision, a good gift from God representing his mark on his people. But that was for them. And actually, it wasn't needed any longer. It wasn't a bad thing for those who were circumcised, but it wasn't so much of a good thing either. It just was something that didn't really matter anymore. It wasn't the point. It wasn't ever really the point. And, and, and this letter, I think, is very much relevant to the way we as a church so often just get sidetracked by things that are not the point. Half the conversations we have as church are just about stuff which is actually totally irrelevant to what God is doing in us and what God has called us to do. Am I right? (laughs) We can learn a lot from this. It wasn't the point. It was never really the point. Actually, God always wanted our hearts. In Deuteronomy, he says, circumcise your hearts. It wasn't just about physical signs. It was about the whole of our lives, the whole of our bodies, true worship. Consecrate everything that you are to him. So circumcision, no circumcision, it doesn't matter because we have Jesus. And his grace wasn't just for a certain people, it was for everybody. So you know when you're in a new relationship, a new boyfriend, new girlfriend, whatever, it would just be really weird um, to have a photo of you and your ex on your mantelpiece. Yeah? Yeah? You just got to get rid of it because you're in, um, hopefully you're in something better. And if you're longing for that old photo on the mantelpiece, 
Let's have a chat afterwards. We'll talk about that. But when you meet Jesus, you don't want to turn back. You don't pine for what went before. He is better than anything you've known before. He's better than even what you you worked for the whole time in your life. You, You thought, if only I could get this, I'll be satisfied. If only I could get this role or get this relationship in my life, I'll be satisfied. And then you meet Jesus and you say, wow, okay, Jesus is better. This is unconditional love that I'm being offered. This new covenant, this bread and this wine, this death and this life means that you live with the spirit of God inside of you. The law isn't the way anymore. It isn't the way our lives are lived any longer because we are people of God's spirit. We are people of God's resurrection because Jesus is better and what he's done in our lives is better than we could ever imagine. And that shapes everything about our identity. So when Peter toys with the idea of teaching new converts to the faith, that they might want to get circumcised, it all starts kicking off. Paul says, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go down that route. You don't want to go back to the law. You want to rebuild that scaffolding. You want to forfeit grace just so you can look good, just so you can belong to the right tribe, just so you can be part of the right clan. Well, that's fine, Paul says. You want to go down that route. If you want a piece of that circumcision action, you've got to have the whole thing. You can't be a person of half grace. You're either in or you're out because God's grace is all-consuming. Think about it. Think about prison. Think about whatever you want to think about freedom. A fox caught in a trap. You're either free or you're not free. You're not half free, are you? Paul says, you want to go back into slavery? Fine, do it properly. But you have to obey every single letter of the law that they had to in the old covenant. Nelson Mandela said, there is no such thing as part freedom. And there's a guy who knew what he was talking about when it comes to freedom. So, so we, as God's people, we can't just drift in and out of, of one week trying to really work hard for God to love us. And then the next week just being like, yeah, I receive it again. And then the next week being like, I'm going to really nail it this time and God's really going to love me for what I do because all it does is it exposes that we never really got grace in the first place. That it was never, ever about cozying up to God, about saying the right things, about not shopping on Sundays, about not swearing so much, about not watching this, or even about being really nice to people, even about being crazily generous to people. It's only ever a free gift received. Are you with me? It's only ever a free gift received when we could never have earned it, not by nothing that we could ever have have done or attempted. So where in your life are you being ensnared with trying to earn God's love? Does it creep in sometimes, these little thoughts? As long as I get my prayer life right, then I'm in there. God's going to love me again. As long as I get involved in church, join the welcome team, and then I'm back in there. God loves me again. Is that how you built your foundation? Because what happens when life goes wrong? What happens when the words run out in your prayer time or things 
get messy in your community. Build your foundation on the solid rock of the grace of God, on the love of your heavenly Father. Let that mark you totally and completely. Circumcision is the example given at the beginning of this chapter, but actually the major dispute wasn't fully about who gets circumcised or not. That wasn't going on so much. Um, you, You know, guys, when you have a member of your social group and you're all best of mates, but then over time there's one person that just begins to kind of stop hanging around you so much and you know, it's a little bit awkward because you see them again and you're kind of like not quite sure the status of the relationship. I'm sure there's, um, what is it, define DTR. You've got to do that. People say DTR, define the relationship. But you haven't really done that. You see them and you're kind of like, yeah, how are things going? And they're kind of like, yeah, things are fine. Yeah. What have you been up to? You know, this and that. Definitely not hanging out with you and my old friends. And you say, oh, okay, cool, good to see you, take care. And it's properly awkward. You know those conversations. Well, Peter was that guy. Paul had to call him out publicly. He says, I'm sorry, mate, I've noticed that you've been withdrawing from certain social circles. And it was true, Peter had stopped eating with the Gentile Christians. And the reason was because he didn't want to upset the old stages. He wanted um, to keep the status quo with them. He wanted to be liked, basically. He was was people-pleasing. The question that it asks of us is, what are you going to live for? I've lived in a a house um, with seven people this year. It's been a lot of fun. Four girls, a baby, and a bloke. I think it would make an amazing title for a sitcom. But you know what's been fun? Um... What's been fun is that you don't get to choose who you have around the dinner table anymore. So when you know you've been working hard um, in the office, kind of choosing worship songs and stuff that's really hard work, you know, you know how it is. And you just need a big glass of red wine at the end of the day and you get back and you have to meet 12 people that you've never met before. And you're making new friends and it's always challenging you and it's a vision, a very small vision of the kingdom of God. Remember before we looked at the way that Jesus had blown open the whole in and out thing, that he had transformed this religion of rule keeping into a faith of following and learning and second and third and 77th chances. That he had spent time with the Samaritan woman, which you just don't do. That he had broken bread with tax collectors. That he had taught his followers. I don't know if you've ever read this in the Gospels, but he taught his followers to have people round for dinner that would never have them back. I think that's amazing. And a quick aside, what would, literally this city, what would it look like if all of us, 200 of us, committed to say, I will regularly have people round for dinner that are not able to have me back. So Paul wasn't saying just you're wrong about the table issue, which he was, but he was saying again, you've missed the point, Peter. He's saying it's not even about who comes round for dinner, who comes round later. It's, it's about two things. It's about understanding God's kingdom as a pattern of thinking, a way of life, and it's about Correcting the way that you see people. 
when your sight has become distorted. So firstly, a wrong pattern of thinking. The God's kingdom isn't just a set of rules that defines who's in or who's out or who we like or who we don't, who can join the club, who can't. It's actually way bigger, way better again than that. It's about an invitation for everyone to come and feast on what God has prepared for them. And if that sounds too kind of airy-fairy and up in the clouds for you, well, I'm sorry. And it's about a wrong way of thinking, but it's also about a distorted way of seeing. Do you know that right now, this evening, tonight, you can ask God, and he's faithful to answer our prayers. You can ask him to show you how he sees people. Difficult people, nice people, people that find it hard to keep their promises. You can ask him, you can say, God, will you show me how you see those people? And then that can become your lens for loving them. Christians, non-Christians, Muslims, whoever it is, when we are transformed by grace, our sight is transformed. There's no turning back to the old ways of judging one another. Because how could we go back when we know how far we've come from, how amazingly we've been saved. Freely you've received, now freely you give. We start seeing one another with the potential that God sees in us. We start seeing one another without the judgment that weighs us all down. And we talk to one another with the same encouragement that Jesus had and has for everyone that encounters him. Maybe you don't even know that. Maybe you don't even know tonight that that God sees you and he sees the potential in you. He loves the way that he's made you. This is something I really struggle with. I find it so easy to see the mistakes that people make. I find it so easy to kind of intelligently comment on people's character flaws and how they could, you know, this is what they're struggling with. Actually, God calls me higher than that. He calls me to call out the best in people because that's the way that he sees them. Judgment never leads to joy. I'm sure all of us can testify that. Any attempt to earn God's love will just leave us completely and totally exhausted. Because it won't work, but it will take every inch of our energy to try it. And it applies to ourselves as well, that, that when we look around and we see that people... Um, We think that they're doing better than us. We think that they're thriving more than we are. Actually, that steals our joy as well. That comparison will steal your joy. And that is why Paul is so annoyed. He knows what's at stake here. This is the grace of God that we're talking about. So he doesn't pull any punches. This is the verse that probably you thought was a little bit weird when we read it. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. All right, Paul, calm down. He's obviously angry about this, but he's giving everything for this cause. He says, I know this is a hard teaching. He appeals to them. In verse 11, I know some people are going to take time to come round to this. But Paul says he's been persecuted because of his commitment. And does nobody else care? We as a church, we're called to be primarily, I think, doggedly, determinedly, single-mindedly a people of grace. A people of grace. A receiving people. That's what I mean by that. A people that that we do amazing things, but only because of the transformation 
that God is doing in us first. We only love because he first loved us. Every time we serve, every time we go out on mission, we do it because he loves us. Not because we're trying to earn our stripes, not because we're trying to earn his approval. That's just a waste of time. Paul says that every time we do that, Christ is of no value to us. Every moment we try and add something into this kind of cocktail of grace, we lose out. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus, thank goodness I've got a good job. Jesus plus, thank goodness this is an amazing city. No, not even that. Just Jesus. And I am loved by God. That's the sole motivation for the way he sends us out. What foundation are you building your life upon? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom to run and jump and risk and speculate on the power and the presence of God. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said life to the full. It's freedom from what came before. For the people of Israel, Paul reminds them about their heritage, about the journey that they've been on. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Why would you do that? You know how hard it was back then. You had to work and work for approval, and still it never came. You received nothing, even though you'd given everything. So why would you want to go back? These guys he wrote to, they were under the rule and the reign of the Romans. They understood what slavery was like. They'll have heard all the stories from Egypt. And for us, we made the same interesting decisions don't we we think well we've got freedom we've got lawlessness so yeah maybe I can do some of that stuff that they wouldn't let me away with at youth group you know there's no consequences right and and Paul just says no you're asking the wrong question just why 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 would you go back to the land of slavery when God's best is right in front of you Why are we so quick to forget how much it sucks being in the grip of unforgiveness? We've all been there. We know how heavy the weight of shame can feel around our necks. Verse 13, he says, don't use your freedom for indulgence. Don't abuse your freedom because you'll lose it when you you go back into the land of slavery. Tonight as we worship, and it's amazing we're going to continue to worship in a minute, If you've always had a foot in slavery and you've never really said, I'm all in, I know this might be scary, but I want to live life to the full. I want to live life in the freedom of Christ. I mean, let's all pray that prayer tonight, shall we? Maybe for some of you, it's time. It's time that you take that step and you say, that thing that's been holding me back, no longer. We're freed from slavery and we're freed to love. Paul says in this amazing verse, the only thing that counts is faith expressed through love. The only thing that counts. Paul wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of stuff and he says this is the only thing that counts. So we better take notice here. Actually, I was reading a little bit of background stuff around this passage and somebody tried to convince um, people reading about this passage in one of the commentaries that the only thing that counts was faith. And they kind of stopped there. It was bizarre. And they said, you know what, the main thing is faith. you just got to believe. And they're taking out love from the equation. But what even is faith if, if it doesn't have flesh on it? We believe in a God who became flesh, who embodied his love 
for us that faith is always and maybe even only expressed through love. You know, as a church, over the past few hundred years, probably the last couple of weeks, probably even today all over the world and and in here as well, we probably need to say sorry for the times when we separated right thinking and the correct thoughts from actually the way that we live our lives. It was never supposed to be a a weird sort of fight between our minds and our bodies. God wants it all. He wants to transform it all. He wants to use it all for amazing things in his kingdom. So last year we had a a series called Witch Jesus. Who was there for that? Just give me, just let me know you're all still awake. We had a series called Witch Jesus. We went through the Gospel of John where we looked at all these different perspectives on the life of Jesus And I want to do a 30-second mini-series with you called Witch Paul. Okay, we are up for this. So often we read Paul and we just think that he's writing these slightly passive, aggressive, angry kind of email open letters to people who just got it wrong. I'm just going to sort out your belief. And by the way, you don't get it either. He's angry. He's like a roaming lion kind of prowling around waiting for people to make mistakes. And actually, it couldn't be less simple than this. You read about the life of Paul. He shared his life with people around him. He was insanely generous with his time and what he knew and probably his tents and all that. He was obsessed with this concept of grace. It had to have flesh on it for Paul. Everything that he wrote came out of a depth of relationship with the people that he discipled and a huge love for the church that he was building. The only thing that counts, he says. Don't abuse your freedom. Instead, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. What does that look like for you? Where is your faith got stuck here and not being able to infiltrate the rest of your body or your diary or your bank account. Just shake it. Let's just do that a little bit. Just shake it down just into the rest of your body. Two or three of you. Okay, great. It wasn't supposed to get stuck there. Where is God asking you and your community to serve this city humbly and in love? Where do you need to repent as in turn and turn back to Jesus and face in a different direction and say we're sorry for separating faith and love and right thinking and right doing. I'm all in now. I'm all in. Let's do this. I want to be free because God wants to free us up. God wants us to be free so much that he gave everything so that we could know him, so that we could know this freedom, so that we could follow him, pursue him, receive from him, and then give it out to a world that desperately needs his love and his freedom. That's why the guys who were involved in 10A did this amazing job all week, serving in different places. They had a huge feast in, in the hall last week where they just invited anybody off the street. An amazing picture of the kingdom. That's why on Friday in here we commissioned a whole new bunch of street pastors to go and serve this city and hand out flip-flops to people who've had slightly too much to drink at four in the morning. That's why it's so cool to hear about Reza and his ministry and those guys who've given everything that they've got so that people can come in to a relationship and and serve them humbly in love as well. We heard about them picking them up and and serving them and, and getting them enrolled in schools and it's not just about 
getting them to think the right things. It's just about expressing faith through love. So let's get free tonight. Let's get freed up from self-centeredness. Let's get freed up from fear. Let's get freed up from a preoccupation with our own image and what we think people might think about us because it doesn't matter. When we tune into the voice of God, he says, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to alert your mind to the injustice that's going on in the world. I'm going to show you the people that need the touch of Jesus. Just finish with one story. So one of the saddest things about the current state of the BBC at the moment, the British Broadcasting Corporation, I think is that one of my favourite programmes... The weakest link has been discontinued. Can we just get an R? I know a lot of you are students. I know that you've watched over 500 episodes of The Weakest Link. Maybe it was just me. So actually, a little story. I was accepted um, to be on The Weakest Link once. I did the the thing online. I I was accepted. I was enrolled. I got sent a letter. It said, come and be part of this. And I was like, come on. This was going to be a life, a mountaintop experience for me. But I turned it down because I was leading worship at Clan Gathering. So that was a terrible decision. It wasn't even like a big thing. It was like five people. I was like, oh, should be a weakest link. Anyway, this story is going nowhere. Anne Robertson, at the end of every round, she used to say the, to the contestants after they'd mercilessly voted another one of the, the people that they'd spent the whole day getting to know off because they didn't get enough questions correctly. And she used to say these things. She used to say, who's holding you back? Who's pulling you down as a team? Who's stopping you from achieving your full potential? Well, Anne Robinson, the good news is that Jesus loves you more than you can know. (laughs) The second thing is that there's a lot of what Anne Robinson says in Paul's words here. He says, you were running a good race, Paul. You were running a good race. It was all going so well. Who cut in on you? Who pulled you back into Egypt? Who took your eyes off Jesus? That kind of persuasion is, is from the enemy. What's robbing you of freedom? Because slavery doesn't have any place in the Christian life. God is for us today and he holds the power and he has made a way. So name that thing that's stopping you from freedom tonight. Just now name it and walk away from it. Face Jesus, walk towards him. As we pray together, just get to grips with it. Just be honest with God. Name that thing that's holding you back or the person or the situation and ask God to show you the next step towards freedom in Jesus Christ. Because we are here for an encounter with him tonight. We are made, we are designed for an encounter with him in our lives. The the original purpose of that circumcision stuff is still true. It's still God's design for us that we would know him, that we would be family that we would identify as his people and that we would just go on this crazy mission in the freedom of Christ. We hope for that. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection has allowed us to come back into line with God's original design. And that is the most amazing invitation that we could ever hope for. So let's take hold of it 
tonight and let's welcome in his spirit.